memory loss. Anyone experienced any memory loss? Thank you. I'm not alone. The challenge with memory loss is you don't know that you've lost it. It's one of those strange things. I love that commercial on TV where the couple, and it's a young couple, which I think is why I love it so much. Um, the guy forgets where he put his glasses. I don't know if you've seen it. And they're in this car and, and they go, they drive everywhere where they've been all day trying to find his sunglasses and they finally get to the cave with the bats and his hood comes up and they were in his hood the whole time. I'm like, I can relate with that. That is me. As each year goes by, I feel like I, I lose a little bit more. Doesn't get better, thanks. <laughs> a little leak somewhere, but the interesting, there's a, a movie out called The Vow, and I'm not, I'm not recommending the movie because it really doesn't follow real life, even though it's based on a true story. It's so loosely based that I would recommend the book rather than the movie. But it's a story of Kim and Cricket Carpenter. Kim is the husband, Cricket is the wife, and they, they, they met over the phone, shared a long-distance relationship that lasted about a year before they finally got married. And it was your typical love story, and they're both believers and both strong Christians. And in Kim's word, it was a real storybook wedding. But barely ten weeks into their marriage, on November 24th, 1993, a high-speed collision with a semi-truck left both critically injured. Cricket, the wife, wound up in a coma with severe brain damage. When she finally awoke three weeks later, she had no idea who Kim was. He was a stranger to her. With no recollection of their relationship, she, she began to experience some personality changes common to those that suffer head injuries. And Kim, her husband, realized that the woman that he had married had essentially died in the accident. I can't even picture that. Ten weeks in. The, the joy of being newlyweds, being married, and your wife not being able to remember you at all. He said, this isn't my wife. My wife is in this body, trapped and trying to get out. And yet, against all odds, and this is where it's an amazing story, and, and rooted in their faith in Jesus Christ that sustained them, they fell in love all over again. Even though Kim stood by Cricket through the darkest times a husband can ever, ever imagine, he insists, I'm no hero. I made a vow. I'm no hero. I made a vow. I made a vow before God, and I said, until death do you part. What an amazing story. And this morning I start with that because it's a story of a wife who struggled with, with remembering her husband. And with that memory, and with the loss of that memory, came the loss of the emotions and the loss of the love. But contrasted to her husband, who remembered everything. And because he made a vow to love her no matter what, and because he said before God, I will let nothing stop that, he persisted and God blessed. And we see the difference between not remembering and remembering and, and how because he remembered, he was able to move forward in obedience. This morning I want to talk about our walk with God. And as we, we come to Mark chapter 14, and Jesus with his disciples in the upper room, he begins to talk about remembering because he knows he's going to be leaving soon. He knows that the next day he's going to be hanging on a cross and their dreams are going to be shattered. 
But he knows what will sustain them and what will sustain us is to remember. To do these things in remembrance of him. To know that he is God and we are his children. And to not forget that. Turn with me to Mark chapter 14, verse 12. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And the scene is, is set and we're moving along through the week and, and we now get to Thursday. Last week, Pastor Andrew was talking about Silent Wednesday and what went on there. And, and so now we move to Thursday, which is sometimes called Maundy Thursday. Thursday. And, and the name for that, I always wondered where the name for that came from. And it actually comes from the Latin mandatum, where we get the word commandment from. And, and if we, if we look through the chron- chronology of this, in John chapter 13, in the upper room on Thursday, we see Jesus doing a, a lot of teaching. And one of the things he says is, a new commandment I give unto you, love one another. And so the early church said, this is a new commandment. This is the key, the, the, the key teaching of Christ on this day. And so it became to be known as Monday, Monday Thursday, or the day that the new commandment was given to love one another. And so that's the setting. And, and we get to Thursday, probably morning here, as we start in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where I may, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Point number one, as we begin to remember and see how Jesus is is bringing his disciples to remember. Point number one is remember that Jesus is orchestrating the events leading to his death. Jesus is orchestrating the events leading to his death. Have we said this one before? This is about the sixth sermon in a row where we've said this one. And not because it's just something that we've chosen to highlight. It's because this is what Jesus is highlighting. And so every step of the way, He's wanting His disciples to know, I am God Almighty. I am sovereign. I do this because it is my plan, not because it is anyone else's. And I think about that because as I was reading it, I'm like, okay, here we go again. Great story. But why would Jesus keep reminding us? Why would He keep reminding us that He is in control? And I can't help but come back to because we keep forgetting. Why do I keep reminding my kids of anything? Because they haven't gotten it yet. Okay, When they get it, I don't keep reminding them. And Jesus here is reminding over and over and over again because He knows that their world is about to be rocked to its core as they see their Master hanging on the cross. And so Jesus is orchestrating the events leading to His death. A couple of things that we want to unpack out of this to understand what's going on. In verse 12, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. And it's helpful for us to understand what's going on with the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Chances are that's not part of our normal yearly routine. And so it's helpful to understand 
their, their feasts and what they do every year. The Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread at this point were joined together, and they were one of three major feasts that they would celebrate throughout the year. And this one in particular went back to celebrate what God did in bringing them and delivering them out of slavery in Egypt. And if we remember back to, to Egypt and what was happening there, and the, the um, nation of Israel was brought in subjection, brought into slavery, and God is delivering them out of slavery from Pharaoh and through a, a series of ten commandments. Or ten commandments, ten, ten plagues. Sorry about that. The tenth plague is where Passover comes from because it's the plague where the firstborn was killed by the angel of death. And we know what happened, that people weren't spared just because they were Israel People were only spared if the families would come together and kill a Passover lamb or kill a lamb at the time that was without blemish and put the blood on the top of the doorpost and the sides of the doorposts. And that night, when when the firstborn were killed, the angel would pass over those houses that had the blood on the doorposts. And it was an image, a symbol of looking forward to the eventual deliverance from Jesus Christ, the eventual deliverance from the Messiah in their eyes that would eventually shed His blood for the payment of sins. And so the disciples and Jesus come to celebrate Passover. Celebrating Passover always had two components. It was a looking back at what Jesus did and or what God did and celebrating the deliverance. But then it was also a looking forward to a future deliverance. What, what we don't know is, is that the, the Jewish people, as they came to Passover, they came almost with a, 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 an excitement. This wasn't something that's like, oh no, what's going to happen? We have to do Passover again. They came celebrating what God did and expecting what God was going to do. Which is part of the Messianic expectations where they are still looking for a Messiah that will come and deliver them. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 42, we see both of those things. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So you see the celebration of the past. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So we see it's a celebrating of what God has done in the past, but throughout all generations looking forward to what God is doing. And so they'd get together and some of the, the timing of what would happen that day on, on the 14th of Nisan, during that day on that Thursday, they would go around and clean all the, the leaven out of their house and make sure their house was clean so that way they could celebrate Passover together. And then about noon on the 14th, the work ceased because this was a national event. And so all work ceased And the slaughter of the Passover lambs began in the temple. What would happen if you were celebrating Passover, you would get your lamb, and then you would go to the temple, and the priest would slaughter it and put the blood on the altar. And that was part of your sacrifice to God. They would take the fat of the lamb and sacrifice it right there. And then they would bring the lamb back to you, and you would take that home and cook it and eat it that night. And so that happened in the afternoon on Thursday. And then Thursday night, which was actually Friday for them, if you remember what Pastor Andrew was talking about last week, at sunset, 
was when the new day started. On the 15th of Nisan, when that new day started, they would eat the Passover meal together. And they had very strict guidelines that the Passover meal had to be eaten between sunset and midnight. Because again, they're remembering what happened with the children of Israel and their deliverance from Egypt. And in Egypt, they had to bake unleavened bread because they didn't have time for the yeast to rise because they had to be ready to go. They had to be dressed and ready to go. And they had to eat all of their meal. And so this was some of what was happening in in the, the ritual, in the tradition of the time that we don't necessarily understand. And so... We, we then see in the evening, the family would come together, and the father of the family would lead the, the Passover meal. And he'd go through the different elements, and they, they always had the Passover lamb, which was where the blood came from, representing the sacrifice that would eventually pay for sins. Just as God passed over the sins, or the, the, the people in Egypt, he now will cover our sins with his blood. There was also the unleavened bread that the father would remind them of the haste that they had to to leave Egypt. And they had bitter herbs and the father would remind them that these bitter herbs reminded us of the slavery and the bondage that God saved us out of. So everything in the meal was about remembering. Remembering what God had done. Looking forward to what God was going to do. There's some challenges in the timing. and, And I'm not going to go into great depth here. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we, we see this meal, the Lord's Supper, happening on Passover. And we, we see the timing very clear. And in John, there's some verses where a number of scholars have said, well, I don't know. That almost looks like he's being crucified on Passover, so the meal would have to happen the day before. And books have been written on this subject, and so we're not going to spend hours and hours on it this morning. But a couple of principles to understand. Number one, God's Word is inerrant. This is infallible. If we have trouble putting two passages together, it's not because God's Word is wrong, it's because our understanding is limited. And that's always how we come to God's Word. But the other aspect is, is the John passages actually could be referring to the whole Feast of Unleavened Bread. See, the Passover would start the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and for the next seven days, they, they wouldn't eat any leaven, and they would celebrate this, and there would still be sacrifices. And, and we know that two days later was the Sabbath day, and they had a day of preparation for the Sabbath day that was a special day of preparation during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, if your head's swimming, it's like, okay, yeah, that's a lot of different information. But all that to say, one of the probable solutions to the dilemma between John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke is that John is referring to the preparation for the Sabbath and for what happens on the Sabbath during this feast. But God's Word is not an error. And so, it's a great thing to dig into a little bit more and study a little bit more. But back to the story. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? We see right from the start, the disciples are looking forward to it. They're expecting it. Okay, what do we do? Where do we go? Verse 13, And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, and we know that's Peter and John from Luke's account, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? 
and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. This should bring to mind what happened just four days earlier. Remember that with the triumphal entry? What did he do? Sent his disciples on ahead to find the colt and said, my master has need of it. Very similar story. And we see Jesus knowing what's happening, orchestrating events. Quite possibly he had arranged, made some arrangements when he was in the city the day before or two days before. But he sends the disciples to Jerusalem to make the preparations. They're in Bethany, about two miles away. And so the disciples go and, and they, they find it, we, we read, just as Jesus said. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. A couple of thoughts. We see a change in the disciples over time. One of the changes is they didn't stop and say, well, Jesus, I don't know. How do you know there's a man there? How do you know this is going to work out? What did they do? They obeyed. They just did it. We don't see the same shock that these things came to pass. We see just a statement of fact, and they found it just as he had told them. And, and as the disciples are walking with Jesus, they're, they're gradually learning. They're gradually learning who God is, who Jesus is, what His power is, and what His authority is. And they go and obey, and Jesus provides. What a lesson for us. When God asks us to do something, our job isn't to figure out why. Our job isn't to figure out how. It's to go and obey and know that God has the other questions figured out. And so they come to Jerusalem and they, they find this man carrying the water jug and that's a rare thing as it is. Women usually carried, fetched the water and carried the water jugs and so this would have stood out. And they followed the man to this room. And they begin to make the preparations to get the Passover lamb, to have the lamb sacrificed, to get the bitter herbs to, to, prov- to get all of the ingredients of the meal, to make sure the room was set up. And then they go back and tell Jesus it's ready. But we said that this first section was remembering that Jesus is orchestrating the events leading to His death. We're still on God's divine timetable. He's not surprised. In fact, He plans to go to Jerusalem He knows that after this meal, He will end up in Gethsemane. He knows that in Gethsemane, He will be betrayed. And this will be the steps to the cross. And He says, this is what we're going to do. There's no hint of desperation, fear, anger, futility. Just Jesus' knowledge and governance of what is happening. A conscious fulfillment of His predetermined plan. And as he keeps reminding the disciples, he's building their faith. And as we read this, it's building our faith to say, there is nothing that we experience that God isn't in control of. There is nothing that we experience that surprises God. His hand is on his plan. And he is executing his plan. One author said, Judas and others may act against him, but they do not act upon him. 
we begin by remembering that Jesus is orchestrating the events leading to his death. We move on to verse 17. As the story goes on, that was act one. The scene is set. The meal is prepared. Act two, the treacherous betrayer forgets. The treacherous betrayer forgets. And act two moves to the evening. The twelve and Jesus have come to the upper room. They're about to celebrate Passover together. And we read in verse 17, And when it was evening, He came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray Me. One who is eating with Me. And at that point, the story just sort of stops in, our, in, the, in, the, in the listener's mind. What did you just say? And I can picture someone reading this, reading what Mark has written, saying, read that again. Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Now you notice a couple words there. Jesus starts by saying truly. Or this is very important. Listen to this. But then he goes on to say, one of you will betray me. And and further specifies it by saying, one who is eating with me. And we need to understand what happens with, with meals and what happens with hospitality to really understand where Mark is going. The different authors take different points of view, but Mark is very intentional in, in keeping in our minds that Jesus is eating with these disciples. See, in their culture, to eat with somebody meant far more than just we're having a bite to eat together. It's more than just going to Taco Bell, having a taco, have a nice day, see you later. To eat with somebody was a symbol of commitment and fellowship. And and it was expected that you would protect and you would honor that person that you're eating with. So far that if your enemy was eating with you and you were attacked, your responsibility was to defend your enemy against the attackers to the point of giving your life. That's how serious hospitality was in this culture. Be nice if we got back to some of that, wouldn't it? Where we really honored having people in our homes and really honored eating with people and those relationships. And so this was a serious thing. It indicated friendship. It indicated acceptance, peace, trust, forgiveness, and brotherhood. And so to betray someone that you had just eaten with was considered in, in this culture to be the most treacherous kind of betrayal. Do you see where Mark's going with this? He's saying, yeah, this is bad, but you don't know the half of it. Judas ate with Jesus. They ate together. And then Judas went out and betrayed him. He's violating Jesus, but he's violating everything that the evening represented. And Mark is bringing us into the story bringing us into what happened and what is going to happen. Imagine if you got together with your closest friends at lunch today, the friends that you trust beyond all else, people that you have spent time with. Remember, Judas has spent three years with Jesus. And in that group, all of a sudden, one of your friends says, you know what? 
Today, today someone's going to be killed in this group. And it's going to be because of someone else in this group. What would you feel? The emotions just rush in. I can't believe it. What are you saying? I was thinking about this in a church setting. What if at an elder meeting, what if I had all the elders over for lunch and we're sitting there and, and, and someone said, you know, I know that one of the elders is going to betray and divide the church this week. I'd want to do something about that. I, my, my protection hairs would be like standing straight up and I'd be like, okay, let's deal with this. Let's stop this. That's what's happening. And Jesus says, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Then we go to verse 19. They begin to be sorrowful. Some translations say deep distress. They begin to be deeply distressed, which is probably a better translation. To their heart, sick in the heart is what it means. But again, see what the disciples do. A natural tendency would have been, I don't know, it's not me, maybe it's Phil. <laughs> Let's get him. <laughs> right, wouldn't that be our natural tendency to start pointing and, and figure out who else it is? What do the disciples do? This has hit them so hard that they say to one, to say to him one after another, so they each start saying to Jesus, is it I? Is it I? And we see their question is more looking at themselves and their own failures and their own weaknesses, saying, could this be me? And it's, it's the idea of, it isn't me, is it? Hoping for a negative answer. And that is the right response. That is the response every one of us should have as we consider our walk with God and we consider the potential of betraying Jesus ourselves because every one of us struggles with sin, which is betrayal. And the question is, is it I? What's very strange and surreal about the setting is we know that Judas also asked, is it I? But not with such honest motives. And we read on, and Jesus, in verse 20, He said to them, It is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with Me. Again, Mark is focusing on we are eating together. You just don't cross this line. Now this, that phrase doesn't narrow it down because they were all dipping the bread together in one bowl. But what He's saying, it's one of the inner circle. It's one of the trusted. How did He get to this place? Treachery is amazing. It's unfathomable. Verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And there's two things that Judas forgot. There's two things that, that have Judas on this path. The first is he forgot his relationship with Jesus and its implications. 
He forgot his relationship with Jesus. If we look at the different accounts, it really looks like Judas is sitting on the left-hand side of Jesus next to Jesus, with John on his right-hand side. And the way that they sat at the table, they were reclining at the table, and they would sit, see if I can do this, sort of like this on their left hand. So their right hand was free to get the food. So if someone's on your left, where is your head? It's basically leaning up against them near their heart. So John is here leaning up against Jesus. Jesus is here leaning up against Judas, eating a meal of communion that represented relationship together. And throughout the meal, Jesus keeps bringing up the meal and keeps bringing up relationship. And Judas has lost focus. He's forgotten his relationship with Jesus and its implications. Instead, his own personal gain and his own greed, his own expectations of what Jesus should have been and the power and money he was going to get out of that so cloud his focus that there's relationship on the outside, but there's no relationship on the inside. And that always leads to betrayal. It always leads to betrayal. When we lose sight that we are to be in relationship with God, that He loves us and we are to love Him. We are just a stone's throw away from from betrayal and falling in the pit of sin. When we forget that when we eat together, we are eating with Jesus because this is His body. When we forget that, it's so much easier to walk out the doors and go home and sin in all kinds of ways. See, going to church doesn't equal relationship. Just as Judas sitting at the table with Jesus didn't equal relationship. It had to be real. It had to be in the heart. Bonhoeffer talks about this when he talks about the sin of lust. And he says, at this moment, God loses all reality. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God but with forgetfulness of God. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. To forget that we are in relationship. To forget that He is our God and we are His people. Judas forgot his relationship with Jesus. Secondly, Judas forgot the depth of consequences for sin. Judas forgot the depth of consequences for sin. This feast was to be one that was remembering joyously what God has done, what God would do. And it starts by an announcement of treachery and betrayal. But part of God's plan. And we see in verse 21 a comparison between God's divine plan and His providence and human responsibility. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. My plan will happen. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And Jesus here is saying, it doesn't matter if I'm going to use your sin, you're still sinning. You're still responsible. You still will be judged for that. Sin is always our choice. We know from God's Word that God never causes sin. It is always our choice. He will use it. He knows it. And He will allow it. But He won't cause it. And that is why He will punish us for it. 
And that is why we need the cross. And that is why we need the blood for Jesus to take that punishment for us. Judas forgot the consequences of sin. Finally, point number three. We see Act 3 in verses 20 through 2 through 26. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper as a picture to help us remember. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper as a picture to help us remember. Pictures are wonderful tools. On Monday, we had the memorial service for Brad Kidder, and there was a slideshow. And in that slideshow, the pictures begin to bring us into his life and, and into relationship with him and bring memories up and, and parts of who he was. And Jesus is doing that same thing here as he's taking a picture to help us remember as he reveals himself as the Passover lamb. In verse 22, and this is during the Passover meal, and as they were eating, he took bread. And they would have unleavened bread and they weren't allowed to cut it with a knife for this meal. And so he would break it and give it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. Take, this is my body. We know that Mark's summarizing a little bit here and from the other accounts, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And the head of the household would break the bread and say, praised be thou, O Lord, sovereign of the world who causes bread to come forth from the earth. And Jesus did that and handed it out. He said, take this, this is my body. And as he said that, the, the wording there is, this is myself, this is my very being. And it's not that the bread became his physical body, it's a symbol, it's a picture to remember what God has done. In their case, what God is about to do. And that bread, as it's broken, represents Christ's body hanging on the tree, broken. But also, in, think of the context of a meal and the hospitality. As Jesus gave it out, it also represents his very presence with us. His presence with every one of them as he said, eat it, take it, this is me, I am part of you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Every time we take communion, we eat with Jesus. We eat with Jesus. And we reaffirm commitments. We reaffirm fellowship. We reaffirm relationship. And it's a reminder not to run out and go sin this week, but to stay as far from it as we can because we've eaten with Jesus. Jesus goes on in verse 23. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And the cup that he probably is using is the one after the meal. So they've eaten their meal together, and he takes the third cup which represented deliverance. It represented God's redemption. And he takes that third cup that represents God's redemption and he says the blessing over it. And he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. See, the old covenant, you killed animals yearly to pay for sin. 
In the new covenant, Christ's blood covers it once and for all. The old covenant is simply a shadow looking forward to when the Messiah will take care of our sins. On the cross, Jesus did that. And Jesus, with His blood, is showing a complete forgiveness of sins for those that will come to Him, for those that will be His people. That is a moment of celebration. And we can come to communion and we can come and say, oh, and we should remember the cost and and the, the debt that Jesus paid But at the same time, Passover and how Jesus was changing this to a new institution of the Lord's Supper was one of celebration. One of saying, praise God for what He's done. Praise God my sins are covered. Praise God that that blood is the means of the covenant. Praise God. as we close and are about to celebrate communion, I encourage you to remember five different things as we take the elements. Five different ways of remembering. We've talked about all of them, so this is more just summarizing. But the first communion is a looking back. How do we remember Christ? We look back at what He's done. The price that He's paid, the debt that He's paid, the depth of His sacrifice, and how much we owe Him for that. Sometimes my children just don't appreciate what they're given. I know most parents can uh, agree with that. And usually the reason is they have no idea what it cost. They have no idea what went into that. They have no idea even of their need. So the first part of communion is looking back, saying this is my body hung on the tree. This is the blood that was spilt in my place for the sins that I've committed. This is Christ's victory over sin. Communion is also looking forward. As we sang about this morning, as we see in verse 25 there, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There was always an aspect of looking forward to when we will be in glory with Jesus Christ. Because His death and His resurrection gives us that hope. The death was not the end. It was the beginning of the covenant that gives us hope. So we're to look back. We're to look forward. We're to look inward. We saw that in today's text when the disciples were saying, Is it I? Is it I? Am I the one that's going to betray Christ? We see Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 challenge us that when we come to the table of communion, we're to examine ourselves, examine our hearts and say, are we right with God? Have I dealt with any sin? And here's the thing that that I challenge you this morning. Don't just take the bread and take the juice because it's passing by. And someone might look at me and say, oh, he didn't take it. She didn't take it. Don't let this be about anyone else's view of you. Let this be about God's view of you. And if you've got business to do with God, do it now. And confess whatever's standing between you and God. If you're not there this morning, then just pass the elements by. Let's not take this lightly. 
Because we're to examine ourselves. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we have to ask the question, am I serious about not betraying who I'm about to eat with? We're about to share a meal meal with Christ. Am I serious about that? If not, then just pass the elements by today. And take time to let God cleanse your heart. Look inward. Fourth thing is to look around. Look around. This is another aspect of communion communion that I think we pretty much forget. Communion is communing with God, but also with each other. The disciples, when Jesus gave these instructions, were eating together, and all of those rules of hospitality were built into Christ's instructions for His church. In fact, in the 1 Corinthians passage, Paul begins by saying, you come to communion and I hear there's divisions among you. You have issues with each other. God is going to judge that. And that's pretty serious. And the instruction is, am I looking around and communing with God's people? If you're sitting here this morning and you are harboring bitterness and anger and an unforgiving spirit towards anyone else in this room, you need to pass the elements by. It's that serious. Or deal with it right now and let go of those feelings and let God heal and say, I am going to celebrate communion together because these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. We look around. Communion means so much more than we think. The fifth one there, which is out of the first Corinthians passage, as we look outward, we proclaim the Lord's death to the world until he comes. So in our time remaining, I'd like to take communion together and look back at what Christ has done. Look forward to what he's doing and the hope that is there. Look inside to say, am I right with God? Am I dealing with sin in my life? Look around to say, Am I in communion with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Then I'm ready to remember how God wants me to remember. Let's pray together. Dear Lord God, we thank you for the symbol, for the picture you have given us of your death, your payment for our sins, your sacrifice. Lord, that you became the Passover lamb And Lord, this morning as we take communion together, I ask right now that you cleanse our hearts. That as a body, you wipe away any issues of sin that we're dealing with. That as individuals, we come to you in relationship knowing that we are eating with the King. And we are committing to not betray the King. Lord, forgive us. Cleanse us. Draw us close to you by the power of your blood. Lord, help us not to take your sacrifice lightly because it cost you everything. 
And Lord, get us excited about heaven and in eternity with you when we will be together in perfect communion with you and with the church. Lord, may our time of communion always be a time of remembering and not just facts, but with every ounce of our body to our very soul. Thank you, God. We now eat with you. We give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name.